Hello again. Welcome to the latest episode of the F-Braided podcast. I'm Anu Anand, journalist and broadcaster. And I'm Holly Tarquini, the founder of the F-Rating, which, as I'm sure you know by now, is a feminist film rating to champion women in film. And today we're bringing you part two of our interview with one of the UK's best directors, Amma Asante. Amma was the first black director to win a BAFTA for writing and directing a feature film. And she was the first black director to open the BFI London Film Festival in its 60 year history. Yeah, and in episode six, um, Amma spoke to us about growing up in South London, some of the racist aggressions that she and her Ghanaian family faced there, but other things like the art school she went to with lots of other talented black students. And Holly, I actually didn't realize, because she, she's really self-effacing, um, I didn't realize that her mum, along with running a Ghanaian grocery, would work as a cleaner in the morning and then in the evening before and after uh, running the shop. So Amma's come from a really interesting um, background, her childhood, etc. Yeah, it was just a fascinating story. But also that makes sense because Amma's got such a strong work ethic. The amount of research that she puts into her films is legendary. And of course her time working as um, as a child actor on Grange Hill, which was the old BBC children's drama series, which apparently they've just announced they're going to make into a feature film. Ah. And they're going to bring back... <laughs> oh but yes, I, really I heard that. Yeah, and I really hope they would be fools not to ask Not to bring Emma. her back. Well, not to ask her to direct it. Mm. Yeah, not yeah, yeah. yeah. bring yeah. her character back, but get her to direct it. Yeah, and of yeah. course, then she went on to secretarial school <laughs> um, and got her typing speeds up by writing a script, which is yeah. a remarkable story, isn't it? So if you haven't heard episode six, go back and listen to what uh, Amma's childhood was like. But today... We'll hear how she went from writing to directing and directing films that feature characters that are defined in some way by race. So whether it's her period drama, Belle, or the historical drama, A United Kingdom, you'll hear lots more details about these films in a minute, or her film about Afro-Germans under Nazism titled Where Hands Touch. This conversation with Ama is definitely one of the most intelligent, nuanced, layered conversations I've had in the UK about race, about film, about storytelling, about navigating opportunity. And it's interesting too, Holly, because, you know, she's she's not fringe. You know, she's made commercially successful films. She's done incredibly well and she's made very different films. Yeah. So here's part two of Amara Santi on the F-Rated podcast. So, Amma, you went from secretarial school to doing your first script. How did you go from being a writer to being a director? Was that, again, was it planned? Was it accidental? Tell us that story. Because I think it involves your your first film, A Way of Life, which is an incredible film. We'll talk about that in a second. But generally, how did you go there? My first two deals for scripts uh, kind of went down the drain so I had um, a seven script deal with Channel 4 for that situation comedy that I'd first typed out I I um, had a four script deal with the BBC for another um, situation comedy called Ladies in the House developed those probably for about three years and then what we call new brooms came in new new commissioning editors and kind of moved those out the way 
But what happened at the BBC was that they came to me about a, a, a slot that they wanted to fill and we ended up filling that with a show called Brothers and Sisters, which I produced and and was head writer on. But it was very sort of prescribed. We're looking for a soap opera and, you know, we're looking for it to be this time slot and we, we want all the characters to be black and, you know, I came from a world where all characters were not black, so... That now it really feels like you're prescribing to us what a world for a black person should look like rather than what a world for a black person is. It served a very important purpose, nevertheless. Um, and I was simply desperate so just for the freedom to kind of write what was in my heart and what was in my soul, which I had done with those first two scripts that I had had precious development time on. And I never regret that development time because I learned so much through it. So I uh, was a pretty lonely writer sitting at home, you know, writing in development. And uh, I decided to join BAFTA. I was invited by the then chairman of the events committee to kind of join the committee and just kind of help. They, at the time, were looking to improve their diversity levels, which were pretty non-existent at the time. At one of the events, I met Peter Edwards, who at the time was head of drama for HTV Wales. It later became ITV Wales. I was introduced to him by by someone and I sort of thought, well, I haven't really met that many heads of drama, to be honest with you. I'd always met the commissioning editor of this or the commissioning editor of that. I mean, he was the kind of overall head. So I thought I'd better say something very clever. So I said, well, you know, Wales. Wales, I'm pretty sure Wales has some of the oldest black communities in Europe. What do you do on your channel to reflect diversity? I said, <laughs> and um, he sort of looked at me and said, I'll be back in a minute. And <laughs> he walked off. And um, that was the last time I saw him at that, that event. And about six weeks later, exactly, I, I got a call on my house phone, which shows you how long ago it was. I answered it and this very gentle Welsh voice came down the phone and said, are you the lady that I met at BAFTA a few weeks ago? And I said, who is this? And he said, I'm Peter Edwards from HTV. And I said, yeah, I actually, I am. And he said, you don't know how long I've been trying to find out who you, who you were. And I said, well, I was black. I was a woman. I was the only one there, Peter. Um, and um, he asked me to come for a meeting. I went for a meeting. He said to me then, and this is another sort of example of how things change, how things move when you're committed. Um, he sat me down, we had a coffee, and he said, I'd like to ring fence some money um, for you from, from my drama budget. And have you write something for us? And I said, well, what? And he said, well, what would you like to write? And I said, well, what, what do you want me to write? Because I'd just come out of that BBC experience. And he said, whatever, whatever you'd like. You, you really thought that um, because Wales had some of the oldest black communities in, in, in Europe, that it might have something to sort of teach the rest of the UK, because that was one of the other things I said to him. And, you know, he said, we're in just as much, we, you know, we, we, we need to understand the world and ourselves and each other just as much as anybody else. And that then sort of told me about this terrible thing that had happened in, in Wales at the time, whereby a young woman had led a gang of boys into killing her, her neighbor who happened to be Muslim and said, you know, the, the, here's an example of, 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 of the kind of thing that can go wrong. And, and, and when we sat and we talked and, you know, he said, I'm really fascinated by the idea of, of, of what racism looks like when it's a symptom. 
not an actual cause, but a symptom of something else. And we got talking and and then we found an article that we both really liked that sort of had a very um, nuanced approach to this particular murder, which was one of actually many, many horrible attacks that had happened where it was young women leading, but a group of guys would actually do the crime. And what was happening at that point and, and how do you approach it not in the tabloid way and the, the, this sort of um, misogynistic way, but how do, you, how do you approach it from a much more socially intelligent point of view? And that's exactly what happened. I did my first draft. Peter sort of had a look at it and said, I, I, I think that this can go wider than Wales. I think we can, we can find financing for this that will allow it to go wider than Wales. BFI, I applied to them and 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 they they went for it. But I I was going to just produce and and write as I had been doing all of my other stuff. And it was really the BFI. It was actually Paul Tribitz and the BFI who um ran, I think they called it the New Film Fund at that time, who said, you know, you really ought to stop looking for directors. You really ought to stop thinking of directing this yourself. And I said no. For all the reasons that, you know, I sort of didn't enjoy being an actor, there was no internet. I didn't know of any black woman apart from um, Ngozi who had made Welcome to the Terror Dome at that particular point, and she was the only one. It, it seemed so extremely far away and unachievable for me to do what she had been able to do to get her movie made and also get her movie distributed. I wanted this movie out there and I wanted this movie seen and I believe that if I if I directed it, that wouldn't happen. So he convinced me, along with my agent, Sarah Stroud, at the time. It took a lot of convincing um, and I did it. I mean, that story contains multitudes not intending to direct the collaboration with Peter. And just to say that, that what you wrote, what you made out of those conversations was the film A Way of Life. And for those who haven't seen it, it's about a young woman, Leanne. She's a teenage mother. She has one of those coin-fed meters. She never has enough money. The baby's always hungry and, and she's battling kind of everyone to love and care for this baby. And uh, the film leads to an incident where she does direct a, a racial attack against her neighbor. And I know that you workshopped a lot with these young actors. And, and you guys explored racial hatred. What, what was that like to navigate? It was really, really hard because, you know, when you were young, a director is an authority figure. So regardless of what color you are and what color that, you know, the kids you're directing are, you, they see you as an authority figure. And so the collaboration that, that should happen really has to be nurtured because they have to be able to see it as a kind of partnership. These were wonderful, wonderful, brilliantly talented young people at the time. They're all parents and completely grown up today, adults, married and living lovely lives. Uh, but at the time they were young. They didn't want to use this language in front of me. They didn't want me to think badly of them. It was very difficult for them to to find a place inside themselves where they could do something like that and make it feel authentic. And this was a very sort of, this film had to have a very authentic feel to it. I think that one of the weird things about being 
the child of an immigrant, but weird in a good way is we are forced to see the world from different points of view. We have to. It's called survival. What I understood and where my curiosity lay, I mean, I understood what it felt like to to to, to be a black person or a person of color on the other side of what racism felt like. What I wanted to explore is what what motivates you, what moves you, what causes you to behave the way that some of the people that were horrific to, to us when I was growing up, you know, what 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 motivated that, what might that, that be? And also at a bigger level, at a much higher level, at the 10,000 feet level, what are the structures of society that kind of create the framework for this kind of thing to happen? What happens in a world where society and its structures make it really, really easy for you to not look at what you should be looking at, but to look at what it wants you to look at. You don't you don't question the right people as to why you're in the situation that you're in. So if you can blame the Muslim across the road, if you can blame the black family that you've just seen move a new bed in, if you can blame the, the Jewish family that look like they've got nicer curtains than you, that's an easy distraction that stops you from looking at why is it that if you're poor, you're likely to have a meter, but if you're poor and you have a meter, you're likely to pay more than the wealthy. Certainly, whose interest is it in then for you to not ask those questions, but for you to look at the family across the road that's different? And that theme runs through all your films, doesn't it, of kind of going down into the specific minutiae of a life and an experience to reveal the universal and you went on from that to direct bell which is a fantastic wonderful movie Uh, but you didn't write this one you directed it but didn't write it is that true no it's not (laughs) but it is the narrative absolutely that was put out there i i actually came off of A Way of Life and began researching uh, what later became my fourth film, which was called Warehands Touch, because I'd sort of told the story of a white girl and I really wanted to now tell the story of what it was to be of colour and European, because that's my story. And the first thing that jumped up for me when I was looking at what possible stories I might might dig into was the Afro-Germans who existed during the Holocaust and in Nazi Germany during that time. And so I actually began developing and writing that researching, heavily researching I research for a very long time and got development financing from the BFI again, the Film Council. But it was really perceived to be just too big. It's like, you know, nobody said this to me, but the feeling really was, why does this black woman want to tell us a story that's set you know, during World War II, you know, about the Holocaust, that's definitely, definitely not the realm or the sort of territory that black women should want to or need to tell stories in. This is, you know, tell stories about yourselves in places we expect you to be, not where we don't expect you to be. There was very, very much that feeling and very, very quickly, I sort of realized I was going to have to do another film to prove that this movie was not too big for me. And at the time I was sort of being, there was also this thing of, well, we know Amma does really tough and she does really rough. And we know Amma does really tough and really rough movies, but can she do anything polished? And so um, my, the producer of Bell, 
sent me a postcard image of the painting and had been trying to tell a story about Dido Bell for a really, really long time. And Can I just jump in? The painting is extraordinary. It's these two girls, you know, very sort of English historical drama looking, lovely long dresses. One of them is mixed race, one of them is white. And this painting exists. And her father had had her with a woman in the West Indies and then had brought her to his uncle's house and said, I have to go back on my ships. Please look after this mixed race girl. And so she did actually grow up in Hampstead in the middle of London in a big stately house as a mixed race girl in that antique white world, or certainly we're always told it was a uniquely white world. I'm always, I'm just always so annoyed that when we look at history, it's always white. But anyway, that, I just wanted to say that. Please continue. So she was a biracial girl raised as, a, as an aristocrat by her own blood family, white, but the white side of her blood family in 18th century England. The painting hangs at Schoon Palace. The original real painting hangs in Schoon Palace in Scotland, which is the birthplace of her great uncle who raised her. And there is a reproduction of the painting which hangs today in Kenwood House and periodically the original is brought across. And so I was sent a picture postcard of this and I was asked to write, uh, I did. I told the story that you see on screen. Unfortunately, when all was said and done and we got to the edit, so if you look at, it's really interesting because I'm putting together some papers for the BFI archives on every single call sheet. I'm down as the writer and the director because that's what I was. And then during the edit, which unfortunately was a period where my father was dying, he'd been ill for a while, but I'd, we hadn't expected him to get so sick that he would die, but he was dying. I learned that I was being taken to arbitration for what I learned. It was an organization called the Writers Guild of America. Our movie was completely British and was financed through British money, you know, shop in the UK, all of it. But a writer that the producer had worked with previously for an HBO version was subsequently dropped, but it was the same director and in Writers Guild universe. They, they then they therefore deem that as the same project they'll say is there a dido bell in our writer's version yes there's a dido bell is there a lord mansfield yes there is then i go through the list of characters and you go yeah but that's history it's called history that's probably what it is um and consequently my writer's credit was completely taken away and and given to somebody that i've never met yeah and uh it was quite a process to go through. It was my first experience of Hollywood without ever really going to Hollywood or doing a Hollywood film. And I have since learned how common this is. Um, there are sort of two versions of what you do if you're if you're looking to work with a writer or if you're looking to know who wrote something, it, credits are not necessarily the thing that you go by. Unfortunately, not even IMDb is because IMDb has a deal with the WGA and once the WGA arbitrate for something, our, IMDb is forced to to credit only the person that the WGA say and you can't even put uncredited. So if the WGA haven't arbitrated it, you can say uncredited writer, but if they've arbitrated it, IMDb cannot. Um, but Amma, at least that makes sense. Thank you so much for telling us because it's so 
entirely seems an Amorosante film. And it's, it's, you know, and it is an Amorosante film. It says that, and it's actually dedicated to my father, you know, at the end. All of that comes because we didn't know until the very last minute that not only could it be swiped away, but it, that it would be swiped away. And of course, the person who, who has the credit entirely believes that they, that they deserve it. And uh, by WGA rules, the rules that they um, arbitrated, I, I, I guess that's what happens. Um, and you sort of have to go forwards, understanding that the way you leave your residue on this earth through your work is through your style of storytelling. And what I have to learn is that my style of storytelling is my style. And it's not, that's not something that a credit can take away. That's not a voice. It, it sounds like a kind of bruising real politic lesson in, in kind of filmmaking. But as you say, the story, the way it's told, you were talking about, they, they were saying, you know, Ama Asante can't do a polished piece. It's so beautifully made. It is so polished. Gosh, watching it now and then like Bridgerton, you're like, wow, this was this was it. This was the original. You know, this was like uh, this beautiful black woman on screen in that world. Did, did you kind of see that coming or, or was it, do you think that planted the seed? And did, I, did I see it coming? I didn't know that. Um, I think you know that when you're you're the first to do something in a particular way, others will, will come afterwards. I, I think you're you're always aware of that. I'd had received sort of praise from from Shonda, and Shonda had sort of tweeted out when Belle came out, you know, run, don't walk to go and see Belle. So I knew she was a fan. I mean, this is this is the beautiful thing about what we do. Um, it's time stamped, and it, it you know it exists beyond us. It's 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 beyond me. It's beyond um, what I do. I'll be gone. If I had kids, they would be gone, and if they had kids, they would be gone. And Bell will still exist, and it exists as a sort of product of its time. In some ways, a product beyond its time and a product that should have been made much earlier. You know, why Why weren't we doing this? Why wasn't the BBC doing this? Um, and it was made because we weren't doing it. We, you know, it, it was made because as a, as a set of societies, we weren't really telling stories that had people of colour showing them as they, as they could have existed. So the fact that something like Bridgerton exists today is purely the purpose of me making Bell was to say we should be opening up these floodgates and we should be allowing these stories to be made and Bridgerton is obviously pure fiction I'm a lover of history I adore history and the sort of authenticity that history brings something but the idea is in the same way that you know white characters can have stories that are based on history and white characters can have stories that are set in history but are completely fictional we should be allowed to do that too and sort of you know, they're two sides of the same coin. And moving on to your next film, again, a historical story. And again, I enjoyed it so much and for exactly that reason. I mean, my family is Indian origin and I never see, I never see the epic television series of the Nehru dynasty on film with those characters front and center. So when I watched A United Kingdom, which is an amazing real life story about uh, Prince Saretsekama of what is now Botswana, marrying this office worker from Croydon, this white woman. And the two of them, 
not only defying their families, but then being embroiled in kind of this international political opposition where the South African government of the day, the British government of the day, wanting to sort of soothe over apartheid feelings, tried to keep them apart. It's an incredible story. And I love that moment when Ruth, the white wife of Saretse Kama, gets to this village in Botswana and that look in her eye when she I think she 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 hasn't realized what it's like to be the only one who doesn't look like everyone else. And she suddenly has this look on her face like, oh, my God, I'm the odd one out. Yeah, I, I don't know what the question is. Um, I just enjoyed it so much. Maybe Holly has a more intelligent question. I'm slightly just overwhelmed by how beautiful, how sweeping, how well directed a film it was, how true it was to the original story. And yet it was compelling. You know, you kind of married the best bits of fact and screen narrative i do have a question <laughs> and so i i believe it's true that in your first film you walked onto set and it was as is i think frequently the case on film sets uh, an all white male crew was that the case for all three of these films predominantly yes there were crew members. Obviously, we have crew members of, of colour and we always make as much effort as we can to do that. So I think with each film, it got more and more easy to do that. Let's let's put it that way. And more and more easy from lots of different angles from the point, because first, first and foremost, um, heads of department are approved by film finances and they, they're approved for their experience. And so you've got this thing where if there's a blockage of experience really early on at the opening, then it becomes really difficult when you're on films of a certain budget to also be able to bring the people on that you want. But we did to a certain extent. I would say that the film that really had it the most and allowed for us to be able to do it the most was a United Kingdom because obviously we were filming in Africa. Um, we had a really international crew on a, um, a United Kingdom. We had a Czech Republic crew. Um, some of our crew, crew was from Italy. A lot of our crew was from America and we had South African crew as well. And then we had Botswana crew too. So it's always something that we do and we make an effort for. What I have chosen to do, I do it in slightly different ways each time because I want to be able to kind of pass on in some way the gift of those early women that I spoke about at Fox to really be able to support a filmmaker in sort of moving their career forward somewhat in the way that I was able to move my career forward after that meeting at Fox. It wasn't that those women did it for me. It was that what they offered me was the sort of um, the feeling that my engine had some oil in it, some petrol in it to go forward. It's really important to me to have someone to have at least one woman, but usually more, usually a woman of colour to shadow me when I'm on set. And the idea is that they don't work on set. They're not runners. They're not interned. They sit next to me at the monitor and they're with me and they see what I do. And so they're with me in my trailer in the morning and they're, they're, they're with me at the monitor. And often they're with me when I go over and speak to the actors or I come back and I tell them what I've done. And the idea is that they have the, a way of being able to say when they're trying to get their own films off the ground, I've been on a real set. I've sat with a real, you know, I've been mentored while Emma was making her own film. 
that has become the thing that I strive to make happen really with each film, as well as obviously trying to make the the crew as integrated as possible. Emma, I feel like maybe uh, that's really interesting, but I also feel like one bit of the question Holly's asking is sort of what it was like for you, because if you come on set and you're a black female director, so you're already exotic and othered and possibly people are going, oh, she can't really do this. How do you cope with that? I mean, you've made it more diverse for other people, but how is it for you? Listen, I think that what happens is my first film was just that, it was a first. And by the time you get to the second and the third and the fourth, you're doing what we all do, which is that you're getting used to being the one that has to prove themselves. (laughs) And we are so used to that as women, particularly women of colour, we just adapt. There are very few that question, and for the for the ones that do, I've had strange things happen to me on set. I've had very, very weird things that have happened to me on set and thankfully not had to work with the people again that have done them. But um, But the whole idea when someone does something to you is that they're trying to shift you off balance for a process that has to go on for weeks. And if you allow that to happen, they win. So you swallow and you move forward and you, you, you look at the bigger picture, which is to finish your work. And the more of these jobs you finish, the more able you are um, to help to change the game in different ways. And the film, Emma, that I think maybe you feel, I mean, I feel as though you, you proved yourself on your first movie and, you know, everything else should have fallen in line. But it sounds to me as though your real kind of baby was where hands touched, that that was the film that you'd started out. It took you, I think, 12 years to get made. And it's a really, it's such a remarkable story. I've yet to meet somebody that went, oh, yeah, no, I knew that there were biracial children living in Nazi Germany that were sent to concentration camps. It's not a known story. And you really uncovered it. Tell us a bit about the um, where hands touch story. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I, I, I sort of happened across it, as you do with these things, while just doing general research about what, what, it, what, what it is to be both European and, and of colour in some way. And, um, and I happened across the, the experience of Afro-German children who were sort of coming of age um, around about the time when Hitler was really arriving at his height. Um, they were the children of French, African soldiers that had been part of the occupation after World War One that had sort of mixed with the white women and had had children or a child just usually usually one child sometimes more with that woman and then eventually by the time World War Two came had mostly gotten out and left Germany obviously and um what was really interesting about uh, these children for me, and this is what I learned on research before actually going in and interviewing real Afro-German survivors of the period, was that they were not targeted at all in the same way that Jews were. There wasn't this machine that was being used against them, this entire kind of machine of hatred in the way that the Jews were experiencing. But... If these, and I should say, if these children sort of kept their heads down and didn't meet the wrong SS officer, these Afro-German children, didn't meet the wrong SS officer on the wrong day, they could kind of navigate this period of World War, World War II and survive. 
Hitler also understood that to target them would be politically the wrong thing to do because the mothers of these children, they were the daughters of SS officers often, they were the sisters of SS officers. So what he decided to do instead was very quietly have these children sterilised and um, without any anaesthetic, removed from school, removed from the streets, sterilised quietly and then put them back into their homes. And the idea was that they wouldn't be able to procreate with the white population, white non-Jewish population of um, of Germany, and that uh, therefore they wouldn't be able to stain the blood. So that was what I knew and I understood through my research. I then managed to find still living survivors who were Afro-German of the Holocaust, still living in Germany. And I was able to go over and sit down and record my interviews with them. And what really evolved from those conversations was something much more nuanced than my research and my understanding had sort of offered me. What's really started to become clear, really like scales falling from my eyes, was that persecution as I understood it had always been experienced within the context of community. So slavery, colonisation, all of those things have been experienced within the context of communities being persecuted. But these children were, once again, isolated. They were individuals that often had white brothers or sisters because their mothers had had children with other with other men. That whole experience that I would have where I would come home from school and say to my mum, this happened to me today. And my mum would give me some sage advice on how to, you know, as a kid on how to handle it. These kids didn't quite have that because even though these mothers loved them, they didn't know what it felt like to be biracial. They didn't know what it was like to go outside with black skin. And the other thing that I really learned from the survivors was what it was like to exist in a world where Anybody that you might have identified with in in a different way, like the Jewish children, were gone. They were gone by 1943. They were in camps or they were dead. All that was left were Aryan children. And black children often were still going to school for a period of time with these Aryan children. So in a world where all the books were influenced by Nazis... All the teachers were Nazis. Your whole entire cultural, every layer of sort of cultural society was layered by the doctrine of hatred and Nazism. These often 15, 16 year olds were, were, were simply exposed in this world. And it was really sort of one of the interviews that I did had, a, a, I'll just say a person um, expressing to me how desperately they wanted to be part of the the Hitler Youth. They wanted to join the Hitler Youth. This person obviously was biracial, Afro-German. How desperately they wanted to be part of it because that was to belong. How desperately they just wanted to be a normal teenager and for them to be normal at the time was to be part of the Hitler Youth. How they wanted to do normal things like dates and and, and, and all of that and how also, also their lack of understanding of the end place for Jewish people and then the eventual understanding later of what was happening to Jewish people and so as she was explaining that she began to sing a Hitler Youth song but and what I could see throughout the you know moments of the interview again was this duality where there was the child and there was the adult both at the same time 
kind of speaking to me at the same time. And as she began to sing, the child began to sing. The adult was crying. We are simply not a monolith. And my experience of racism was completely different to what it would have been like in Nazi Germany. I think it was the first time that I really realised that even though all of my films were about this, that the idea of being a product of your time and your place is so poignant. And the idea, and I think about it all the time, what am I conditioned towards? The, the reality of conditioning is, you know, when it's done really well, you don't know it's conditioning <laughs> until, until, until you break out of that conditioning, right? So what is it that I don't recognise? Um, we don't know. What's your experience? Do you feel like there are places where, where those messages of trying to open up opportunity, trying to take on nuance, trying to allow different viewpoints is working better? You've directed a couple of episodes of this fantastic series, Mrs. America, which is following the Equal Rights Amendment and the opposition to it within America. So another historical uh, series with this sort of unlikely viewpoint. So what's your experience of the, the different countries and the different opportunities? I, I think whether it's um, responding to me as a person behind the camera and people like me behind the camera or whether it's the lens through which the stories are told, I, I do think that there is a movement for change. At the moment, I'm due to be shooting in, in Latvia and Lithuania in a couple of months' time. And, you know, and I've worked in the Czech Republic and all sorts of places where the height of respect is, is afforded to me in exactly the same way as I think it would be to a, a man who was, who's white. Looking at something like Mrs. America, I think if this show were made 10 to 12 years ago, we would not have had the Shirley Chisholm story in the way that I was able to direct her story. And that was just the one life, you know, there were so many other lives that, that were orbiting around her in that show as well. That also a billion trillion times bigger, Gloria Steinem's, you know. And so, so I think that we, we've shifted into a place where there is an understanding. You can't make a show like Mrs. America and, and, and miss out the important story of a human being like Shirley Chisholm. I think we've, we've, we are in a, in, a, in a place where you can certainly go to countries where perhaps they've never worked with a director who's uh, uh, at the same time female and black and who would just, you know, crew will just get on with the job and, and just do it. Are there more opportunities? Yes, I'm, I'm seeing more opportunities. Weirdly, I had a dream about Destiny Akagra last night. I have to text her and say, I, I had a dream about Destiny. And it was a great dream because, as you know, Destiny is a, a British director. She's a woman of colour. And Destiny was just like, it, it was, I was just sitting back and I was just watching her and she was just killing it. She was out there and she was speaking to someone else and, and they were saying, you know, there was in my dream, they were sort of saying to her, oh, Destiny, on this next one, you've got to go out there and kill it. And she's like, I've got it. I've got it. I know, I, I know, I'm, I'm fine. I've got it. There was no level of discomfort. There was no level of sort of challenge or trauma or anxiety. It was just the kind of a calm, peaceful dream of, of success and achievement more than hope, achieved hope. I definitely look around me and I see, I see a world in which I'm absolutely not alone. Um, and we need more. There's no doubt that, you know, we, we, we have to keep, you know, pushing forward and doing more. But this is, this is not the same 
as the moment in when in which I picked up my BAFTA and I'm the only, the only, the only anymore. I'm in a world that is slowly and brilliantly being populated by other women like me. And that feels good because, because then we become in a place where we're not, it's not about, oh, well, she was let in just because she was black. We're in a place where our, our work is competitively on a platform competing with each other's and competing with everybody else's as it should be it's not the one that's there to tick the box but it's the sum that's there to offer the power that every culture needs which is the power to dissect and to question and to challenge and to reflect and to influence and you cannot do that from a single point of view you cannot you really can't. Abba, that is, is the most perfect spot to go out on. That, that You are absolutely killing it. And yes, because being the only one and the first one must also be akin to being the lonely one. And it's really fantastic that the industry is changing. And yes, we will keep pushing for change and we will keep championing all the people we must. that come in. We must. Thank you, Abba. Arma, thank you for making time for us to talk to us. Uh, thank you for your films. It's just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, so much. Thank you both for hearing my story. It's, it's much appreciated. It's always cathartic as well to be able to, to look back and work out how one wants to move forward as well. So thank you for giving me that opportunity and good luck with the podcast. I am so pleased that we waited two years to get Amma on this podcast. Wasn't Me too. she worth every moment? Yeah, she was, I mean, yeah, just so full of heart, so much intelligence and and she's stunning and just generous and yeah, I don't have a bad word to say about her. As a journalist, I feel I should, but I, I don't, I don't. She's brilliant. You're not working at the BBC now. No, You don't no, have no. to go, oh, but the bad thing about Amara Santa, because there isn't. No. She's just great. Yeah. Yeah. She's so good. Right. So we're not quite sure what she's doing next, Holly, because we didn't really ask her. And there's a little bit of information online. She does seem to have lots of projects in development, but obviously the one she's already done, we would highly, highly recommend in case you didn't already get that from the conversation. But along with her existing films, I was looking around, um, just kind of looking for black film directors in the UK. And actually the BFI has a page that's dedicated to Black Britain on film. And you can watch lots of shorts and not just contemporary ones, but I loved it because you've got black and white ones that go back decades. So it really made me think of her because it's storytelling, but there's an element of history as well. So that's a real treat. Oh, nice. And I'd like to give a shout out to, there's this brilliant company based in London, but I'm hoping they're going to move to, to Bristol at some stage, called We Are Parable. They were founded by Tian and Anthony Andrews, and they put on events around black films. So okay. things like Black Panther and The Woman King and Till, and their mm. events just look magnificent. So I highly recommend everybody go and check out weareparable.com. 
Fantastic. Well, there's some more resources for you.、Uh, remember, we've got loads and loads of films we've already recommended, so check those out. And for now, that's the end of season one of the F-rated podcast. We hope to be back with more conversations featuring films made by women, by intersectional feminists.、Uh, and so, if you like films and you want to keep up with those,、uh, keep track of us. In the meantime, please tell everyone. About the podcast,、uh, we've had more than two thousand downloads. That's amazing. We've had fantastic reviews. So if you can like the podcast and follow it, or share the link, that would be absolutely fabulous. And for now, thank you so much for listening. 